Hello, my name is Lawrence Woodruff, and this is my ninth year as a high school science teacher. And I'm Michael Ralph, and this is my first year conducting education research full-time. Professional development requires ongoing dialogue and reflection. So hit play and lean in as we discuss education research and drink beer. Today, we are drinking chocolate ale from the Boulevard Brewing Company. Oh yeah, we get to drink beer while we do this. Man, there's something to look forward to. I like the smell, dark and subtle. It is an ale, it pours lighter, lighter in color. I was noticing the lightness of the color as it was coming out. Yeah, the chocolate really comes through. I'm... This is not chocolate only in name. This has chocolate characteristics. What are we doing today, King? With many schools beginning the fall in remote or hybrid settings, we are still thinking about digital teaching. Research on filming techniques shows how your camera and editing choices impact student retention and understanding. Later, we read about a new model for need-supported teaching. Three essential elements build an engaging and productive classroom. Finally, we reflect on the role of teacher judgment in that need-supportive model. Let's get started. Our first segment of the new year is prompted by the article Lights, Camera, Action, The Role of Editing and Framing on the Processing of Filmed Events. This was written by Joseph Magliano, Christopher Kirby, Thomas Ackerman, Sig Sidney Garlich, and J. Max Stewart from the uh, and published in the Journal of Cognitive Psychology. Yep, came out in 2020. Uh, and hat tip, thank you, Dr. Magliano, for providing the paper for us to be able to read. It's a the transition to season four is always a little weird because we take we take the last episode of the season like off as far as reading papers, and so I really leaned into that this year, and uh, I took a few weeks to just focus on other things in my in my job and my work, and so. Uh, when it was time to start thinking about papers again, I really had to kind of like restart the engine, you know, kind of feels like getting your getting your lawnmower out of the shed for the first time in a season where like, ah, this is a couple of like cold pull starts, right, to like get it actually going again. And so I was searching through my, my research aggregator, um, kind of just looking for what kind of stuff is relevant because we've uh, we're going back to remote teaching circumstance for most folks uh, here in our area as the school year starts up again. And so um, we've been doing remote teaching relevant material for several months now. Um, gosh, coming up on half a year of really focused on remote and hybrid uh, types of issues. And so uh, the question was, what kind of material uh, is going to be useful is to you all as, as listeners and to us as, as, um, as educators? Um, that's not kind of a retread of topics that we've already discussed to some extent, right? I don't, I don't want to get into, I don't want to, I want to have a, a lot of overlap. And so this one hit me because as I think about preparing for a new school year in the remote setting, I imagine if I was, if I was going to be in a classroom, I'd be doing a lot of um, like uh, 
uh, video preparation. I really, um, I, I believe in asynchronous instruction as a centerpiece to equitable approaches to remote instruction. And so I, be, I, I expect I'd be shooting a lot of video. And so as I'm thinking about a, a school year of video shooting, as opposed to like a just get by for six weeks kind of a video shooting scenario, I'd want to, I'd be interested in getting better at shooting video that is useful and promotes um, memory and cognition in students. I take it that you were unimpressed by the topic. Uh, yeah. Um, so, lights, camera, action, the role of editing and framing on the process of filming event, of filmed events. Uh, I can see the appeal uh, from that title and probably the abstract, too, because it talks about memory and cognition. I'm like, yeah, how, does, how do we make educational tutorial videos or interactive videos or demonstration videos or what you know, assessment videos or whatever the videos that we're going to do that are going to be intricately involved in our coming experience. So I can see why this uh, this article would be appealing. But when I get down to the actual reading of the article, um, when I'm you know I'm not at the uh, narrative film level to really uh, integrate the um, findings of this paper in my production of education tutorial videos we're not i'm not going to do uh, lots of high production videos where the questions of how do you use cuts and framing when directing or editing a narrative story so that the audience can maximize the understanding of the sequence of events uh, I think the resolution of that is a little beyond my scope and though even if I intend to teach tutorial videos for the rest of the year uh, I I don't anticipate that I'm going to do a highly polished multi-cut version of any of those videos uh, for my students so I feel like it's useful information for a tier of video production that I never aspire to. I, I'm going to push back on that, on, on that perspective. I, I, I suspect that may be your, your attitude. I think that there are things in here that speak to the level of video production, even that you, I know you specifically have done in the past um, because a lot of their, their framing and their background material is related to filmmaking. I don't argue that. And I'm also not particularly keyed up about that. Uh, but the actual reality of their experiment is something that I think is pretty closely uh, relatable to the kinds of videos that teachers are making um, for like lab tutorials or even for like concept walkthroughs or like math problem explanations or like liter literature relationship diagrams, things like that. Uh, because the essence of what they did is they had two people do a mundane thing, set up a campsite. You, these two people walk, in, walk into our backyard, you put up a tent, you make a campfire. Uh, these are these are I don't, they may have been professional actors, but this was not a high production quality thing. They just said, make a campsite, do that. However, it makes sense to you. I think they called it like a naturalistic approach, which is sounds like a fancy way to say we didn't write a script. You just do whatever. Uh, and so they had this like diagram where they set up three non moving cameras. Uh, one was like a broad shot that just kind of centered on everything. Like, here's what's happening on the on the stage. And then they put two other cameras that were uh, captured the behaviors of both people, but centered one in the foreground and put one in the background. So if you can imagine like a like a triangle where one is like stage center and then two other cameras on either side, a left and a right side, where one actor is clearly in front of the other. And that was it. Uh, they didn't. They didn't. They didn't move the cameras. Uh, it wasn't. They would. They weren't telling a narrative, right? It was a really, really short video. It was really like in, 
almost improvisational in what they were doing. And then uh, they, they did a couple of different things with the video they shot uh, and then showed it to a bunch of college students. And yes, the, there was an edited version that was made by a professional film editor. And I agree, we don't aspire to that, especially if we're making many instructional videos, especially if we're doing it for multiple classes um, on a day in, day out basis. But that was compared to two lower threshold investment approaches. Uh, they compared the highly edited version to uh, first a control that was just the centered camera shot with no movement and no editing, which is exactly how I shot every single lab tutorial video I ever made. I set up one camera, I put it right in front of me and I made sure to catch everything and that was all I did. Uh, so I feel like that the control condition is exactly the kind of video a great fraction of teachers are shooting for their instructional videos. And then the and then the other one was they showed a video of just one of the angled cameras that put one actor in the foreground and one actor in the background and again did not edit it. So angled shot that gave some depth of field, but did not do any fancy editing. And so as I was reading this paper, what I was looking at was, yes, if I'm going to like be shooting a high stakes, you know, major synthesis and summary explanation, maybe I need to cut in a few, like maybe I could see a world where I would do a high investment editing scenario. But all the other comparisons are just a choice of camera placement and how that impacts the experience of the people watching the video. And I feel like there's some value in that as a teacher. Uh, well, only if the findings mattered. So what did they find? Well, unless I misunderstood the paper, and I might have, uh, the best one was the static, the static view. So like what we are doing now was better for sequence of event retention. There was a, there's a trade-off. Um, the the unedited version, the unedited versions, both of them, the unedited versions um, predicted viewers with a meet with a significantly higher uh, retrieval capacity for the details of what they saw. Uh, so if you just you show them a, a, an instructional video that doesn't have any editing in it, and then ask them, what was in that video? Tell me in the highest detail you possibly can. Um, students who watch unedited versions of those videos will retrieve more uh, like fine-grained details of the literal things that happened. Uh, that, is, that is the finding that I was uh, concentrating on. So, so far, we're on the same page. But folks who are, wa who, who are watching edited versions of the video um, have a significantly higher, uh, what was it, um, uh, segmentation experience, and I got a uh, significantly higher degree of event segmentation. And so the what I interpreted the meaning of that to be, if you don't edit, then you have an opportunity to get your, your, your encoding what you're seeing at a very high degree of detail versus if you're editing, that interrupts that encoding process. And so you are forced to encode only like the general threads, themes, and narratives of what's happening. And you can't focus on those details in the same way. I did uh, catch that particular thing. I, um, I, I, one of the notes that I said that was relevant to me was that the edits caused the eyes to refocus to the center, rapidly reassess what they're seeing, and then shift to the most important action or figure on the screen. And that shift is a shift in attention and that shift in attention takes away from other cognitive resources of the brain and so the and since those uh 
that that focused attention is necessary for consolidation, you do lose consolidation of details by putting more edits in there. And that's just about focus. That's just consistent about everything we know about study and classroom focus. So you're saying there's a trade-off, and I don't know what the, what is the gain you're talking about. Well, the you're describing focus. I'm going to reject the notion that all details are valuable. So uh, I think that if you've got an opportunity to use video editing um, to help students uh, prune some of the unnecessary extraneous uh, details that might be present if you really want to focus on overarching themes. My recollection in the papers, there's a spot where they're describing that editing puts viewers in a position where they're position where they have to do more inference. And so there are situations where that's desirable, especially when you're doing synthesis across multiple experiences and you're trying to decide relative um, priorities and weightings and importances between concepts or between ideas where it's inappropriate to be getting wrapped up in some of the very small details of what you're seeing. And you really want to be building larger narrative arcs or threads in ideas. I'm thinking specifically about um, maybe after you've had a couple of exposures to an idea and you're trying to find general themes and you really want to reinforce like, overarching structure for ideas where I don't want them to be wrapped up remembering the specific thing I'm writing on the whiteboard right now. I don't want them to remember that specific detail. What I want them to be doing is building those inference networks so they have a general idea of this narrative flow of how the different macromolecules might interact in a cell and their various uses and positions. And I do not want them to remember the specific shape of this particular molecule. I want them to just remember it kind of looked like this. And so that fit into the larger story in that way. And so it's a way to help them prune some of the unnecessary details in situations where you don't want them to be wrapped up in the individual minutia of what they're seeing. I just don't think it's practical. I suppose I do not, despite the fact that I have, I think like, let's see, I can get the actual number, the 161. Okay, so despite the fact that I have 161 tutorial videos posted publicly on YouTube, I don't identify as a, someone who produces video. And and the reason why is because it's a practical return. So to me, what keeps me from investing in video production skills is the practical return on doing so. Um, but we're living in a time where it's going to be a quintessentially more heavily relied on crutch. Mm which thereby just directly increasing its practicality. Uh, But that's not the only finding in this paper. The other one that I was actually more excited about and I saw slower uh, was the off-center unedited version is not equal to the centered unedited version in the results that they saw. In fact, in pretty much in in many, not all of them, but in, in many of the, of the analyses, and there were there were quite a few in the analyses. The off-center version was usually somewhere between the centered version and the edited version. So, if I just move where I put the camera that I'm using to film myself, I can add a better understanding of the chunking of events in video in the video that I'm shooting. Well, let's make sure I understand what that means. If you want detail recall, you center it and you don't edit it. If you want to reinforce key ideas, you edit it. 
where's the middle? What's the middle? The static off-center actually had a trivial but higher mean recall. The difference between static center and off-center was not significant. Uh, but the but the other differences, the, the event parsing, there are differences that are significant. So put the camera wherever you want, but if you want the remember the details, don't edit it. If all you care about is remembering the fine details of what you're shooting, don't change the video. Don't edit the video. If you want them to be parsing the events of what is unfolding in your video, you should think about where you put the camera. Parsing the events? Well, see, I, I think you're making a leap there. I, I, I like... I think you're making a leap. Like, where is the performance? Where's the performance measured that says that they're doing a better job of threading the narrative together? Segmentation behaviors increase. They identify more discrete actions occurring when you edit the paper. Because the segmentation behavior, pressing spacebar, is saying, we have completed an action. We have completed an action. We have completed an action. So they interpret more things have happened when you edit, edit it. That's what that means. Uh, they, they are parsing the things that happen. So this is a different event now. This is a different event now. Versus this is all that, like, when it's centered, they're like, things are still happening. This is still basically the same event. So they are identifying... It's in the self-report measure, this is now a meaningfully different event button press when the camera is not centered. Well, when the camera is edited. Oh, yeah, and when it is off-centered. I see. I see. There's more segment. Okay. Yep. They, they, they identify more things are happening. How does that lead to they're more likely to ignore more of them and then only and thread together the ones that they do see in a meaningful way? I think you're making a lot of leaps there. Oh yeah, I'm absolutely, I'm leaping and hopping. I, I, I don't argue that statement. What's the drawback? Like, what's, why would you center it? It sounds like you're trying to sell the should of put the camera off center. Yeah. When they said it was insignificant. No, for recall, right? So for recall, so there's no cost. It's, it's trivially higher, but it's insignificant. And it's really close. It's probably not real. No cost for recall and... Identifying multiple events is better. But see, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I don't believe that better segmentation, I don't believe that higher segmentation is better. Uh, now, in the, in the video that we're comparing to, there were actually two actors, right? So there was somebody doing something in one, and in the foreground, and someone doing something in the background, right? So they have to keep track of both of those individuals to identify when one is starting something and then one is into something while simultaneously doing the same thing for the person, uh, the other person. So they're actually trying to keep track of multiple events happening at the same time. Uh, I suppose then the question is an issue. I suppose it's a, it's a, it gets into the schema of the kids as to how they're defining events. If they're like chunking the activity They may be identified. So is it, is it, are they defining them differently or are they catching fewer events? Oh, that's good. That's good. You, you just like shoved me off a cliff into a new place that I didn't even know was there. Um, so when is it good to have segmented perceptions of videos? Right. And when is it good to have unsegmented perceptions of videos? And I think that they're different. 
uh, because most of my examples have been living in that lab, that lab demo example. And so I, like I very quickly arrive at a decision. I, yeah. So um, if we're trying to, okay. So now, now that you've made that, I've become less defensive about my position. And so now I'm thinking if we're trying to, if we're trying to have them recreate a procedure, we probably need them to be able to discreetly identify every single step and sub-step of that procedure so increased events would matter. But if this isn't procedural, and some of these ideas are supposed to coalesce and cohere with each other, then you'd want to remove as many discrete ideas. The problem is I find this difficult to be apl applicable because we are watching... I find it difficult to be applicable in a, in a tutorial education tutorial video space because what we're doing is we're watching actors trying to identify what they're doing. And very rarely, though not never, but very rarely is that the goal or modality of an educational tutorial video. <laughs> I'm going to look back at this school year and say, oh my gosh, everything I did was garbage. <laughs> I should I should have I should have put those cameras. I should have had three cameras all in the weirdest positions. <laughs> uh, that'll be fun for me. This was fun. If for no other reason then we don't disagree all that often, so it's nice to be able to argue with you. Yeah. Agreed. Listen, plan and play. For a second segment, we read Need Supportive Teaching and Student Engagement in the Classroom, Comparing the Additive, Synergistic, and Global Contributions. This was written by Elizabeth Olivier, Benoit Garland, Alexander Morin, and Virgin Hospel. I think that's Galand. Uh, there is no R in that name. There is no R in that name, Galand. My apologies. Uh, this was published in the Journal of Learning and Instruction. Uh, and this was published in 2021. So how exciting. We're reading a paper from the future. Uh, I really like this paper. This paper felt really good. It was really fun to read. Um, I, uh, it resonated with me and it felt valuable. So thanks for slating this one, buddy. What are they talking about? They're talking about need supportive practices that promote student engagement. They're divided into three categories. Practices that support student autonomy, practices that provide student structure, and they use the term involvement, but for me, that's I, I, and I think it's more colloquial, casually to discuss that as relationship building with students. Uh, autonomy supportive practices are things like providing choice for your students, allowing students to work at their own pace, acknowledging student perspective and using student perspective when you can, allowing them opportunity to use their voice in your classroom, using informational language, to inform their decisions instead of controlling language, which tells them uh, how to behave, and encouraging questioning and being open to criticism from students. So that's the autonomy piece. The structure piece, and I think this uh, lends itself to kind of a more formal classical understanding of education, is clearly communicate expectations, clearly communicate how to achieve uh, their goals and how they can help you achieve your goals, clearly provide support so that they can meet those goals, and uh, provide clear feedback and boundaries for how they operate in your classroom. 
And then finally, relationship building, show positive attention to students, spend time to know your students, demonstrate care, demonstrate empathy, and appreciate and respect your students. So for relationship building. And these things are not, um, they're not revolutionary. They're, they're, they're not controversial. They're not maybe as universally prioritized as we'd like them to be, perhaps. Would there be a revolution in education if everybody all of a sudden started prioritizing student autonomy and as a result, teacher autonomy? Well, it's interesting that you say that because autonomy flows downhill. If we want to give our students greater opportunities to experience autonomy, then we need to be giving our teachers greater autonomy in their own practice. And and I just finished talking about how much I like this paper. And I can say one of the reasons why I like this paper is that autonomy is a really important topic in education, both for students and teachers, so much so that it's something that I that you and I have already written about. The researchers situated all of this within the larger self-determination theory explanation for how uh, teachers and students experience the process of struggle and growth. Uh, those are kind of the three major tenets of self-determination theory. And so the researchers big uh, question that they set out is these three things are important and we don't really know their statistical relationship to each other. Uh, so they said, if, if I have a lot of autonomy and no competency or relatedness, is that good? Is that irrelevant? Is it is is having a little more of the other two a big deal, or do I need to have basically balanced amounts? Their question was, what's the relationship between each of those? Because that's not very well understood right now. And so there are basically three explanations. They said the additive approach, which is just um, they all sum together. So lots of autonomy is great. And uh, if you add a little more competency, that's good. And that's just as good as a little more autonomy. You know, you just you just keep adding in to any of those three barrels. Um, the, there is a synergistic approach, which is to say that lots of autonomy is good. And that also suggests that adding more of the other two will magnify the benefits of the remaining uh, autonomy that is there. So having more of each of them is greater than the sum of the parts that you need to you keep adding more and they make the benefits of each other more substantial and more quantifiable. And then there's the last approach, which is uh, less well understood and is the one that they were really intending to investigate. And that was the global approach. Uh, the global approach in my head, I kind of operationalized that to be like this holistic sort of, uh, they all work together. There's a tremendous amount of overlap. Teachers who uh, are autonomy supportive and so, uh, you know, build classrooms where students can make choices and where students can self-direct are to a substantial degree the same teachers who are also uh, building connections with students who are also providing support for students uh, and that all those things work together and that if you have just one without the others that's just not going to get it done that you have to have this global measure of all three of those things being in place before you start to see real benefits from this kind of uh, self-determination or self-determining approach. Uh, and so it was all of them working together that was far more important than any of them working in isolation by themselves. And that one was much less described in the research. So this study set out to measure that. Yeah, uh, I, the way I imagined the global uh interaction was that there was a threshold amount of autonomy and a threshold amount of um, uh, a structure and competency and a threshold amount of relationship building and um, 
what was the term they used uh, involvement and once all three of those thresholds is reached you start having these uh grand effects in the classroom and, but we don't really know what the threshold for those are and we don't even know if that model that there's some whole some amount of the all three of them together that that makes the magic happen we don't really even know that there's been some they they mentioned in the in the in the uh, review section of the paper that there was some kind of a small, weak support for this uh, global perspective, but it really was not well ex- uh, explored. And so basically they set out to um, ask a whole bunch of students, like a, it, it was a lot, it was, uh, over a thousand students, 1,193 eighth graders about their experience in their classrooms uh, related to these different tenets of self-determination, you know, theory described experience. And they also asked those students about their experiences of engagement. Uh, And that was also across three categories, their behavioral engagement, how are they doing their emotional engagement? How do they feel within their classroom uh, setting? And then also their cognitive experience within the classroom setting. And so they were measuring how are each of those uh, um, flavors of engagement impacted by these different um, degrees of self-determination, whether it be global or the individual categories. I want you to just go look at page eight of this paper because that diagram is fantastic. The pathways, the arrows and their their decimal points describe uh, loading degrees. So how well does your answer here um, inform this, this more abstract quality that we're measuring. And so what happens is the numbers on the left all go down dramatically when you map them to just one global factor. And so like um, the accepts mistakes, if it helps us learning, it's like a little bit of the way down, uh, goes to double zero, like doesn't load at all on autonomy support because it all maps to the global factor. Yeah. Wow. Gosh, it's almost like I want to turn it into a poster and put it up in the back of my room. Well, I don't, I'm, I'm a little uncomfortable with makes fun of students. I, I think has fun with students might be a better phrasing for that. And you can eliminate the, that's literally the item. And then it's reverse scored. Oh, it's reverse scored. You're right. So doesn't make fun of students. Doesn't criticize student doesn't punish more than congratulates oh that's great oh i'll leave it as is and people can ask me is that a good quality the reverse of it is uh the makes fun of students is one of them that stands out to me because it maintains a 0.4 loading on the unique involvement factor even after it loads like you know medium on the global factor because that one has such a strong cultural valence like this is my interpretation now, but that one has such a strong cultural valence that's measuring something else in addition to the global factor and they both load to get. So, so your reaction to that of like, oh, that, that one is complicated. You're right. And it actually shows up in the statistics. <laughs> that's great. Well, they asked seventh graders, some math questions and some uh, essay question or some questionnaires. And then they did it again when they were eighth grade so that they could calculate their growth in math or their prior math experience. Um, and so after they had done that with them, they 
they looked at the classrooms that those kids had been in. They considered some of the, they considered a lot of factors, the gender breakdown of the classroom, socioeconomic status of the students in the classroom, um, prior academic history of the students in those classrooms, prior relationship with math. So they, they controlled for a lot of stuff, which made for some really fun reading if you like uh, experimental design. But if you want to just get to it, what they found is that uh, yeah, there are major there, – there is – those three different explanations, the additive uh, form – the, the added, additive formula or the synergistic, synergistic or global models for the effect of supportive practices on student engagement, not all those models hold up. In fact, most of them don't. Uh, the, the global model is the one that really uh, – that actually worked is the one that they saw in their modeling. Uh, and so from a statistics standpoint, right, like whether or not these these variables are distinct or not is not of particular consequence to practitioners. But here's what does matter, I think, is something that um, that you and I have, have, have stories of and have seen in the classroom where you have somebody who says, I want to have let my students self-determined. And they may not say it in that words, but I really want to build in student authority and I want to let them uh, engage in personalized learning or whatever the words may be. Uh, and so like, here are all sorts of choices for my students. They can do lots and lots and lots of different things. All they have to do is just make a choice. But if that's the only thing that I can do, and I still have this environment where they, they don't feel supported in making those choices and they don't know how to get better when they're struggling, and so that they don't make progress. In fact, they, they do worse than they have in the past. And this model bears that out uh, and says that if we've just got one without the others, that's not that's no good. In fact, that's even that's even worse than it used to be. And so you really have to have all of these things in place before you start to see some of the benefits of students working in a self-determinant way. And so I think that speaks to the, you, you can't have the parts. It can't be piecemeal. Um, you've got you've to really commit to all of it, to be able to support the student's autonomy and provide them structure to struggle productively. And you've got to be able to be involved and be present and build the, the relationships amongst you and your students and amongst themselves before you start to see those benefits. And the incrementalism literally does not work. When I look at it from my perspective, I, I feel pretty comfortable with um, providing autonomy to my students. I'm not actually worried about this for this coming semester. But when I look at how do I provide structure for my students and uh, yeah, so the structures that I've used... I, I make myself available for students to contact me during the workday and even after the workday and have like one-on-one -on -one support sections. Uh, I, I leverage that intensely and that's going to be far more difficult in this remote setting because I don't have an office that they can just walk into and say, hey, I'm having this question about this topic. So how do I make myself available? How do I provide them the structures and opportunities to support them in my classroom? In my classroom and, you know, I guess this is a, this is a topic for another episode, but I confiscate cell phones on site in my classroom. Uh, guess what? I'm not going to be able to do in a remote setting. Have any degree of influence over their cell phone use at all? Really, I can ask them. Hey, 
could you please not? And that is the extent of, of, of what I can do. Uh, and so the structures that I have relied on for the classroom culture that I built in the past must – I can't use those structures. I must create new structures, and that is a difference from shrugging it off. That is a difference from saying, hey, uh, my old structures don't work. You know, I guess we'll just wing it and, you know, we'll see what happens. No, 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 no. I need to be conscientious about the structures. I have to make some decisions about the structures that I'm going to impose in this new world that we live in. I must determine what those structures are. Uh, and also involvement. The, the key things that I lean on for relationship building often have to do with sharing a physical space with my students. Um, walking around the classroom, having proximity or distance or all of these, the use of our bodies and our tables and our chairs and our space and standing and walking and, and passing, like the physical act of putting a student in the hot seat by taking the whiteboard marker and placing it right in front of the desk and looking in the eye and say, you're up and I know you can do it. That moment has to be translated differently. If I'm going to give a student that moment that it's their time to show what they got to the rest of the class, I'm going to have to change the theatrics of that. That's a relationship building moment. And I can't have it in the next environment that we're going to have, at least not in the same way. I've got to figure it out. I have to decide how am I going to do involvement? Because it feels very, very different to do icebreaker activities in a classroom of 25 students in, in a tape on tables than it does with 25 students in a zoom lecture. Icebreakers feel different. Um, you know, you can have a conversation happening in the class that's social because you're trying to involve those students. And then those two students at the back table are having a conversation. And right now that's okay. Well, guess what? On zoom, they're not having those conversations with each other. And if they are, they're texting their friends, they're doing the side conversations that may not be involved in what you're intending. So the relationship piece is going to be very, very different for me. And I can't just wing it. And I can't just let it go. I have to think about that. And I got to find a solution. These three pillars matter. All three pillars matter. You can't let them go. Know your students. Uh, okay, thank you for that. And now the, the, the very last note that I made on this one, and uh, I just want to make it, it was has to do with, okay, so in the global view, we've got all these different things that we've got to do, provide structure and support, um, provide autonomy, opportunities for autonomy, and uh, build relationships with our students. we got to do those three things. Uh, but assuming that you're doing those three things in a sufficient amount, you hit those thresholds, whatever they happen to be, because those aren't defined yet. But assuming that we're hitting those thresholds, you can actually have wild variation between them as long as you're doing all three. You could be, you, you know, you do a good job with relationship building, you do a good job with structure, but man, you just go nuts with autonomy. Go nuts. It's okay that they're not balanced. It's fine. And um, one of the reasons they, they were hypothesizing or at least suggesting reasons why that might be the case. And in the classes that had some of the highest achievement, those teachers were responsive. And being responsive means they shift their concentration amongst those practices, uh, practices in response to student need and student feedback. And I wanted to um, 
I wanted to highlight that because we still have to be responsive teachers, even if we're hitting all three of these things. It's not like it's a pie. We cut it into thirds and we just do those three things. And it's not like it's a script. It's not like it's clockwork. And then it's not like it's the same. No, we still respond to our students. And if there's a day where it's just like, you know what? something dramatic happened in our school, in our community, or even maybe just to one student in my classroom. And today we're going to, we're going to reel back the support. We're going to reel back the autonomy and we're going to go in on relationship building because that's what we need today. Then that's the right thing to do. You can go heavy with one, you can go heavy with another, and you can respond as long as you're hitting all three and the class can rely on you to provide those three things. You may have to shift between them at different times in response to your students, your school year, and uh, and because teaching is responsive because you got people in those classrooms. Well, it feels like a better segment three than what I had planned. The It's about teacher judgment. And a lot of their comments throughout the paper are that these practices are so closely intertwined. If you're providing lots of student choice, you're very probably thinking about how to help them navigate those choices. And you're very probably developing relationships with them so you can make predictions about what they need to navigate those choices. Like they're just, they're so closely intertwined, both statistically and practically, that they just don't happen one without the other very often. Um, and so what you're describing, but it's not a silver bullet. And so that kind of responsiveness, I think, really speaks to the utility of this research in this environment. As we switch to the, the remote teaching, I'm thinking about a, a narrative that a colleague of mine told when I was at the high school level about uh, he really committed to um, students walking in every day and like they build what they know and then they talk about what they need to know and they, they revise and improve and it's heavy cognitive work like day in, day out. It's, it's, it's hard, it's hard work uh, and they feel good about it, but it, it is hard work every day. And so he'd identify periodically, they'd walk in and the students are, they're exhausted and they have other things happening in their other classes and other things happening in their social structures, you know, prom is tomorrow. And, and there's a big basketball game tonight and, and there's an English paper that's due, you know, tomorrow. And there's just so many other things that they accept the value of what they do in this classroom, but it's just not what they need today. And he says, let's color. I've got a stack of worksheets. We don't do worksheets, but that's what we need today. This bring everybody predictability and what's what's going on. And you can just feel this this sigh of relief in the room as they're like, yeah, this is this is what we need today. And they do a day of a worksheet. And it's not that they understood that this person, this teacher was saying worksheets are good. And I hear that in the story in the in the analysis you're describing, Mr. Woodruff, of and it's an essential component of the other pillars because the autonomy is useless by itself. It's garbage by itself and recognizing here's what we need in this circumstance. And while the broad research says, don't use that worksheet today, my judgment and my recognition of the circumstance says this is exactly what we need today. Empower each other. How was the beer? Uh, I drank it all, and normally I have the presence of mind to save, like, a few little 
drafts so that I can sip them at the end and answer this question well. But uh, I think that uh, that that's a testament that I just drank it all without thinking about it. I have to say that it's uh, it's 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 dark chocolate is what it is. It's a it's not sweet. This was not a sweet chocolate ale. This was a, a bitter, a more bitter chocolate ale. What I like about this one is it's an ale and not a stout. And so it's a little bit lighter of a drink, even though it's got a pretty heavy APV. And so it's actually it is it's right where the sweetness is that I would want it to be. Um, Cause I don't want the heavy sugariness to it, um, but it's not quite as heavy as what a stout would be. And so it's just right in that sweet spot. Cause I love dark chocolate and uh, it's just a little bit easier to drink than most stouts. And so, um, so I cranked through my couple really quickly here in the episode and I just sat waiting for my last drink. Um, and it's, it's, it's pretty good. Well, thanks for tuning in once again. We really enjoyed being here for season four. Uh, We're excited to be talking about research as we embark on this unprecedented semester of doing remote and hybrid and high flex and whatever else it is that we're going to be doing, but we're going to work with students. So uh, if you have pipe papers you want to read or questions you want addressed, uh, we really want to engage with all of you. So let us know what's important so we can be discussing the topics that are useful and relevant to what we're doing in this incredible and challenging semester We'll talk to you next month. We want to improve. So as we pursue growth, discuss research and struggle well.